for the love of reading, featuring selections from novels, complete short stories, poetry, and nonfiction, read for you by Linda Pack. There is no love sincerer than the love of food, wrote George Bernard Shaw. In this episode of For the Love of Reading, we offer up a literary love on a plate, a blue plate special, a veritable feast of the savory and the unsavory, a smorgasbord of stories from H. H. Monroe, whose nom de plume was Saki, and Carl Sandburg, and the great O. Henry. But for starters, let's begin with that classic folk tale staple, told and retold around the world, starting as early as the 1700s. Let's have some nail soup. Once upon a time, somewhere in northern France or perhaps Switzerland, or possibly Ireland or Sweden or Eastern Europe or even America, a traveler came to a small village carrying nothing but the ragged clothes on his back and a bent, rusty nail. Seeing a small cottage with smoke rising from the chimney, he knocked on the door. The door opened, and a woman looked at him suspiciously. "'Please, could you be so good as to give a poor man shelter for the night?' he asked." Oh, no, go away, she replied. If I give you a bed, you will want food, and I have none to share, nor does anyone else in this village. Oh, I have everything I need to make a delicious meal, he said. In fact, I was thinking of making some nail soup to share with all of you. Just bring me a pot and some water, and I'll cook the best soup you ever tasted. The woman brought a pot and looked on with amazement as the traveler made a fire, heated some water, and then with great ceremony got out a bent, rusty nail from his pocket and dropped it in the pot. The soup might be a little thin, he said. You see, I've been using the nail for seven days now. It is a pity you don't have a little salt and pepper. Now that I come to think of it, said the woman, I might have a little salt and pepper in the house. How lucky, said the traveler, and put salt and pepper in the pot. Soon the villagers started gathering around. After a while, the traveler tasted the soup and said, If I only had some onions, that would really make this soup wonderful. One of the villagers ran to grab a couple of onions. After adding the onions and cooking the soup for a while, the traveler tasted it again and said, only I had a few carrots and maybe some peas. Then the soup would be so much better. And another villager ran to get a few carrots, and another got some peas. Ah, he says, smacking his lips. It is already very good, but a little cabbage would really enhance the flavor. And one of the villagers remembered that they had a cabbage and went to fetch it. And the stranger kept on tasting the soup, and each time he'd mention something else that would make the soup just right, and each time a villager would run and get that item for the soup. Maybe some potatoes, or perhaps a turnip or two. A bit of beef, I think it's excellent already, but then it would be fit for a king. The pot bubbled away, and the most enticing aroma filled the air, wetting the appetites of the villagers. 
After a while, the traveler finally declared the nail soup was ready to eat. But before he served it up, with great ceremony, he fished out his bent, rusty nail, wrapped it carefully in his handkerchief, and put it back in his pocket. All agreed that it was the most delicious soup they had ever eaten. In fact, the villagers were so impressed with the nail soup that they offered the traveler a great deal of money for the bent rusty nail. But he refused to sell it. He pointed out, I never know when I might be hungry again. And he went upon his way the very next day. And from that time on, Although the villagers often talked about the most exquisite soup they had ever tasted, they could never quite replicate the recipe themselves, not having that bent, rusty nail. Well, nail soup is a traditional story, which incidentally is about an actual, if unintended, ancient food practice. People have been cooking in iron pots for centuries. The technology for making cast iron was invented in China in the 5th century. And there are now modern studies showing that this practice actually may, in fact, have some merit. It may help decrease the incidence of clinical iron deficiency anemia. To this day, in Cambodian villages, a pretty fish-shaped iron ingot placed in a cooking vessel with a few drops of lemon juice when making rice or stews is considered good luck. But public health should not be a matter of luck. And that was the firm belief of the heroic chef Alexis Sawyer, who lived and cooked for the nobility of France and England in early Victorian times. Now, Sawyer was a master chef and a writer and an inventor who took a keen interest in public health for instance, during the Irish potato famine in the 1840s, he fed the starving poor in Dublin by designing a soup kitchen that could feed 1,000 people an hour. He devised field stoves for use in camp kitchens, army camp kitchens, and he worked with the brilliant nursing pioneer Florence Nightingale during the brutal Crimean War, which improved the conditions for the troops. And his methods and equipment were so efficient and economical that the British Army used them, modifying them for modern times, for more than a century. And Sawyer wrote more than a dozen revolutionary cookbooks on cookery. In 1854, his book, A Shilling Cookery for the People, Embracing an Entirely New System of Plain Cookery and Domestic Economy, contained 36 recipes for soup alone, none for nail soup. And it had a profound effect on the cooking and eating habits of the newly emerging working and middle classes who were trying to navigate the seismic cultural changes that were happening at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. So here, from his book, The Modern Housewife, is his recipe for toast. Now, this was published in 1849. So, before electricity, before packaged sliced bread. And even so, it begins with a prefatory note from the editor. <coughs> Perhaps some housekeepers may laugh at the presumption of Monsieur Sawyer 
in attempting to give a formal receipt for so trifling a matter as making a piece of toast. But in cookery, there are no trifles. Every preparation of food, however simple, requires thought, care, and experience. Among the unpleasantnesses of our breakfast tables, there are none more common than poor toast. Editor. How to make toast. Procure a nice square loaf of bread that has been baked one or two days previously, for new bread cannot be cut and would eat very heavy. And then with a sharp knife, cut off the bottom crust very evenly, and then as many slices as you require, about a quarter of an inch in thickness. Contrive to have a rather clear fire. Place a slice of bread upon a toasting fork, about an inch from one of the sides. Hold it a minute before the fire, then turn it. Hold it before the fire another minute, by which time the bread will be thoroughly hot. Then begin to move it gradually to and fro until the whole surface has assumed a yellowish-brown color. When again, turn it, toasting the other side in the same manner. Then lay it on a hot plate. Have some fresh or salt butter, which must not be too hard, as pressing it upon the toast would make it heavy. Spread a piece, rather less than an ounce, over it, and cut into four or six pieces. Should you require six such slices for a numerous family, about a quarter of a pound of butter would suffice for the whole. But cut each slice into pieces as soon as it is buttered, and pile them lightly upon the plate or dish on which you intend to serve it. This way you will find a great improvement upon the old system, as often cutting through four or five slices with a bad knife, you squeeze all the butter out of the upper one and discover the, the most underneath one at the peril of its life, swimming in an ocean of butter at the bottom of the dish. All kinds of toast require to be done the same way. But if to be served under a bird, eggs, or kidneys, it requires to be toasted drier. How to make dry toast. Ought not to be toasted until quite ready to serve, and then when done, place it in a toast rack or standing upon its edges, one piece resting against the other. Any kind of toast that has been made half an hour earlier is not worth eating. Hundreds and hundreds of cookery books were published during the Victorian era to provide counsel and advice in all domestic manners, and to offer assistance in the new technologies of urban living. Isabella Beaton's classic Book of Household Management was first published in 1861, and it sold 60,000 copies that year. It contained 2,000 recipes in alphabetical order, in order to find them easily. In its preface, we read... Mrs. Beaton has brought to her new offering to the public a most anxious care to provide uh, and explain plainly and fully all the most difficult and recondite portions of cookery. Were there any warning as to what not to be done likely to be needed? It is given, as well as advice as what ought to be done. 
No pains have been thought too great to make the little things clearly understood. Trifles constitute perfection. My own personal copy of All About Cookery is the 1907 edition. It has a colored frontispiece, eight colored plates, and 48 plates in monochrome, and there are also 17 pages of advertisements in the front and back, which perhaps help pay for the costs of self-publishing. The products that are promoted in these ads include two kinds of soft scouring soap, cocoa, self-raising flour, which was invented in 1845, three brands of gelatin, Vaseline, floor polish, four egg powder substitutes, two gas cooking ranges, which were first developed in the 1820s, tomato ketchup, and Isinglass, which I learned was not, in fact, mica. It is liquid fish glue for use by internally only by infants and invalids. But here is my favorite from inside the front cover. For pie crust, cakes, and puddings, the leading professional cooks now use A-T-O-R-A, Atora, prepared solely from fresh beef suet, contains no preservative. Sold in blocks and ready shredded, one pound equals two pounds of raw suet. Cooked in milk and slightly sweetened, a tora is an excellent substitute for cod liver oil in consumptive cases where the latter is refused or very much disliked by the invalids. Suet puddings and baked rice puddings with a little finely shredded suet, say one tablespoonful in a pint of milk, are very nourishing for delicate children. A-T-O-R-A, Atora, sold by grocers and dealers in one and one-half pound boxes. Hugan and Company Limited, Open Child Mass Nester. Yum! <laughs> so both the craze for health foods and aggressive marketing campaigns and print advertising the new art form of the 20th century, ascended to dizzying heights in the early 20th century. In 1906, the United States passed the Pure Food and Drug Act, prohibiting the dangerous spread of misbranded or adulterated food and drugs in interstate commerce. However, in 1911, advertisers discovered a loophole. This new law only prohibited false and misleading statements about the ingredients. It did not prohibit false therapeutic claims. You had to be honest about what was in a product, but not necessarily about what it could do, which might explain some of the recommended recipes for a Torah. And in 1911, that same year, the prolific and witty British writer H.H. Monroe, pen name Saki, published this short story masterpiece. Philboid Studge, the story of a mouse that helped. I want to marry your daughter, said Mark Spaley with faltering eagerness. I am only an artist with an income of 200 a year and she is the daughter of an enormously wealthy man, so I suppose you will think my offer a piece of presumption. Duncan Delaney, 
the great company inflator, showed no outward sign of displeasure. As a matter of fact, he was secretly relieved at the prospect of finding even a two hundred a year husband for his daughter Lenore. A crisis was rapidly rushing upon him, from which he knew he would emerge with neither money nor credit. All his recent ventures had fallen flat, and flattest of all had gone the wonderful new breakfast food, Pipenta, on the advertisement of which he had sunk such large sums. He could scarcely be called a drug on the market. People bought drugs, but nobody bought Pipenta. Would you marry Lenore if she were a poor man's daughter? asked the man of phantom wealth. Yes, said Mark, wisely avoiding the error of over-protestation. And to his astonishment, Lenore's father not only gave his consent, but suggested a fairly early date for the wedding. I, I wish I could show my gratitude in some way, said Mark with genuine emotion. I'm afraid it's rather like the mouse proposing to help the lion. Get people to buy that beastly muck, said Delaney nodding savagely at a poster of the despised Pipenta, and you'll have done more than any of my agents have been able to accomplish. It wants a better name, said Mark reflectively, and something distinctive in the poster line. Anyway, I'll have a shot at it. Three weeks later, the world was advised of the coming of a new breakfast food, heralded under the resounding name of Philboid Studge. Spaley put forth no pictures of massive babies springing up with fungus-like rapidity under its forcing influence, or representatives of the leading nations of the world scrambling with fatuous eagerness for its possession. One huge, somber poster depicted the damned in hell suffering a new torment from their inability to get at the filboid studge which elegant young fiends held in transparent bowls just beyond their reach. The scene was rendered even more gruesome by a subtle suggestion of the features of leading men and women of the day in the portrayal of the lost souls. Prominent individuals of both political parties, society hostesses, well-known dramatic authors and novelists, and distinguished aeroplanists were dimly recognizable in that doomed throng. Noted lights of the musical comedy stage flickered wanly in the shades of the inferno, smiling still from force of habit, but with the fearsome smiling rage of baffled effort. The poster bore no fulsome allusions to the merits of the new breakfast food, but a single grim statement ran in bold letters across its base. They cannot buy it now. Spaley had grasped the fact that people will do things from a sense of duty, which they would never attempt as a pleasure. There are thousands of respectable middle-class men who, if you found them unexpectedly in a Turkish bath, would explain in all sincerity that a doctor had ordered them to take Turkish baths. If you told them in return that you went there because you liked it, they would stare in pained wonder at the frivolity of your motive. In the same way, whenever a massacre of Armenians is reported from Asia Minor, everyone assumes that it has been carried out under orders from somewhere or other. 
No one seems to think that there are people who might like to kill their neighbors now and then. And so it was with the new breakfast food. No one would have eaten Philboyd's studge as a pleasure, but the grim austerity of its advertisement drove housewives in shoals to the grocer's shop to clamor for an immediate supply. In small kitchens, solemn pigtailed daughters helped depressed mothers to perform the primitive ritual of its preparation. On the breakfast tables of cheerless parlors, it was partaken of in silence. Once the women folk discovered that it was thoroughly unpalatable, their zeal in forcing on the households knew no bounds. You haven't eaten your Philboyd studge, would be screamed at the appetiteless clerk as he hurriedly wearied from the breakfast table, and his evening meal would be prefaced by a warmed-up mess, which he explained as your Philboyd studge that you didn't eat this morning. Those strange fanatics who ostentatiously mortify themselves inwardly and outwardly with health biscuits and health garments battened aggressively on the new food. Earnest, spectacled young men devoured it on the steps of the National Liberal Club. A bishop preached against the poster, and a peer's daughter died from eating too much of the compound. A further advertisement was obtained when an infantry regiment mutinied and shot its officers rather than eat the nauseous mess. Fortunately, Lord Birrell of Blatherstone, who was war minister at the moment, saved the situation by his happy epigram that discipline to be effective must be optional. Philboyd's stunch had become a household word. But Delaney wisely realized that it was not necessarily the last word in breakfast dietary. Its supremacy would be challenged as soon as some yet more unpalatable food should be put on the market. There might even be a reaction in favor of something tasty and appetizing, and the Puritan austerity of the moment might be banished from domestic cookery. At an opportune moment, therefore, he sold out his interest in the article, which had brought him in colossal wealth at a critical juncture, and had placed his financial reputation beyond the reach of cavil. As for Lenore, who was now an heiress on a far greater scale than ever before, he naturally found her something a vast deal higher in the husband market than a 200-year poster designer. Mark Spaley, the brain mouse who had helped the financial lion to such untoward effect, was left to curse the day he had produced the wonder-working poster. After all, one may have to have this doubtful consolation, that tis not in mortals to countermand success. I do wonder what Phil Boyd's studge was made of. Surely it was not the splendid and noble grain described in this next exquisite piece from the great American poet and historian Carl Sandburg. Inspired by the great bounty of the American heartland, Sandburg created a sublime and whimsical world in his wonderful rutabaga stories for the delight of his young daughters and for us. So here is Carl Sandburg's how to tell corn fairies if you see them. If you have ever watched the little corn begin to march across the black lands and then slowly change to big corn 
and go marching on from the little corn moon of summer to the big corn harvest moon of autumn, then you must have guessed who it is that helps the corn come along. It is the corn fairies. Leave out the corn fairies and there wouldn't be any corn. All children know this. All boys and girls know that corn is no good unless there are corn fairies. Have you ever stood in Illinois or Iowa and watched the late summer wind or the early fall wind running across a big cornfield? It looks as if a big, long blanket were being spread out for dancers to come and dance on. And if you look close, and if you listen close, you can see the corn fairies come dancing and singing, sometimes. If it is a wild day and a hot sun is pouring down while a cool north wind blows, and this happens sometimes, then you will be sure to see thousands of corn fairies marching and countermarching in mocking grand marches over the big long blanket of green and silver. And then, too, they sing. Only you must listen with your littlest and newest ears if you wish to hear their singing. They sing soft songs that go plasisi, plasisi, zisi. And each song is softer than an eye wink, softer than a Nebraska baby's thumb. And Spink, who is a little girl living in the same house with the man writing this story, and Skabooch, who is another little girl in the same house, both Spink and Skabooch are asking the question, how can we tell corn fairies if we see them? If we meet a corn fairy, how will we know it? And this is the explanation the man gave to Spink, who is older than Skabooch, and to Skabooch, who is younger than Spink. All corn fairies wear overalls. They work hard, the corn fairies, and they are proud. The reason they are proud is because they work so hard, and the reason they work so hard is because they have overalls. But... Understand this, the overalls are corn gold cloth, woven from the leaves of ripe corn mixed with the ripe October corn silk. In the first week of the harvest moon, coming up red and changing to yellow and silver, the corn fairies sit thousands between the corn rows, weaving and stitching the clothes they have to wear next winter, next spring, next summer. If it is a cool night and looks like frost, then the laughter of the corn fairies is something worth seeing. All the time they sit sewing their next year clothes, they are laughing. It is not a law they have to laugh. They laugh because they're half tickled and glad because it is a good corn year. And whenever the corn fairies laugh, then the laugh comes out of the mouth like a thin gold frost. Travelers who have traveled far and seen many things say that if you know the corn fairies with a real knowledge, you can always tell by the stitches in their clothes what state they are from. In Illinois, the corn fairies stitch 15 stitches of ripe corn silk across the woven corn leaf cloth. In Iowa, they stitch 16 stitches. In Nebraska, 17 and the farther west you go, the more corn silk stitches the corn fairies have in the corn cloth clothes they wear. And in one strange year, it happened in both the states of Ohio and Texas, 
the corn fairies wore little wristlets of white morning glories. The traveler who heard about this asked many questions and found out the reason why that year the corn fairies wore little wristlets of white morning glories. He said, Whenever fairies are sad, they wear white. And this year, which was long ago, was the year men were tearing down all the old zigzag rail fences. Now those old zigzag rail fences were beautiful because thousands and thousands of corn fairies would sit on the zigzags and sing Plasisi, Plasisi, softer than an eye wink, softer than a baby's thumb, all on a moonlit summer night. And they found out that year was going to be the last year of the zigzag rail fences. It made them sorry and sad. And when they are sorry and sad, they wear white. So they picked the wonderful white morning glories running along the zigzag rail fences and made them into little wristlets and wore those wristlets the next year to show they were sorry and sad. Of course, all this helps you to know how the corn fairies look in the evening, the nighttime, and the moonlight. Now we shall see how they look in the daytime. Around the middle of each corn fairy is a yellow belly belt, and stuck in this belt is a purple moonshaft hammer. Whenever the wind blows strong and nearly blows the corn down, then the fairies run out and take their purple moonshaft hammers out of their yellow belly belts and nail down nails to keep the corn from blowing down. When a rainstorm is blowing up terrible and driving all kinds of terribles across the cornfield, then you can be sure of one thing. Running like the wind among the corn rows are the fairies, jerking their purple moonshaft hammers out of their belts and nailing nails down to keep the corn standing up so it will grow and be ripe and beautiful when the harvest moon comes again in the fall. And the next time you stand watching a big cornfield in late summer and early fall, when the wind is running across the green and silver, listen with your littlest and newest ears. Maybe you will hear the corn fairies going, Plasisi, Plasisi, softer than an eye wink, softer than a Nebraska baby's thumb. That was Carl Sandburg's Fantasia, How to Tell Corn Fairies If You See Them. Our last literary chef will be O. Henry, which was the pen name of the prodigious American writer Sidney Porter. He wrote more than 600 short stories, many of which were set in the American West, but New York City, or Baghdad on the subway, as he called it, was his great muse. Published in 1906, his story collection, The Four Million, includes this next piece de resistance. It serves up not merely one ingredient, not just corn or breakfast food or toast or even soup, but the whole bill of fare, the entire menu, the complete table d'hote. Here is O. Henry's Springtime a la carte. 
It was a day in March. Never, never begin a story this way when you write one. No opening could possibly be worse. It is unimaginative, flat, dry, and likely to consist of mere wind. But in this instance, it is allowable. For the following paragraph, which should have inaugurated the narrative, is too wildly extravagant and preposterous to be flaunted in the face of a reader without preparation. <clears throat> Sarah was crying over her bill of fare. I think of a New York girl shedding tears on the menu card. To account for this, you will be allowed to guess that the lobsters were all out or that she'd sworn off ice cream during Lent, or that she'd ordered onions. And then, all these theories being wrong, you will please let the story proceed. The gentleman who announced that the world was an oyster, which with his sword he would open, made a larger hit than he deserved. It is not difficult to open an oyster with a sword, but did you ever try to notice anyone open the terrestrial bivalve with a typewriter? Like to wait for a dozen raw open that way? Sarah had managed to pry apart the shells with her unhandy weapon far enough to nibble a wee bit at the cold and clammy world within. She knew no more shorthand than if she'd been a graduate in stenography from a business college. So, not being able to stenog, she could not enter that bright galaxy of office talent she was a freelance typewriter and canvassed for odd jobs of copying. The most brilliant and crowning feat of Sarah's battle with the world was the deal she made with Schulenberg's home restaurant. The restaurant was next door to the old red brick in which she roomed. One evening, after dining at Schulenberg's 40-cent, five-course, table d'hote, served as fast as you can throw five baseballs at the gentleman's head, Sarah took away with her the bill of fare. It was written in an almost unreadable script, neither English nor German, and so arranged that if you were not careful, you began with the toothpick and rice pudding and ended up with the soup in the day of the week. The next day, Sarah showed Schulenberg a neat card on which the menu was beautifully typewritten with the viands temptingly marshaled under their right and proper heads from hors d'oeuvre to not responsible for overcoats and umbrellas. Schulenberg became a naturalized citizen on the spot. Before Sarah left, she had him willingly committed to an agreement. She was to furnish typewritten bills of fare for the 21 tables in the restaurant a new bill for each day's dinner, and new ones for breakfast and lunch as often as changes occurred in the food or as neatness required. In return for this, Schulenberger was to send three meals per diem to Sarah's hall room by a waiter, an obsequious one if possible, and furnish her each afternoon with a pencil draft of what fate had in store for Schulenberg's customers on the morrow. Mutual satisfaction resulted from the agreement. Schulenberg's patrons now knew what the food they ate was called, even if its nature sometimes puzzled them. And Sarah had food during a cold, dull winter, which was the main thing with her. And then the almanac lied and said that spring had come. Spring comes when it comes. 
The frozen snows of January still lay like adamant in the crosstown streets. The hand organs still played, in the good old summertime, with their December vivacity and expression. Janitors shut off steam. And when these things happen, one may know that the city is still in the clutches of winter. One afternoon, Sarah shivered in her elegant hall bedroom, house heated, scrupulously clean, conveniences seemed to be appreciated. She had no work to do except Schulenberg's menu cards. Sarah sat in her squeaky willow rocker and looked out the window. The calendar on the wall kept crying to her. Springtime is here, Sarah. Springtime is here, I tell you. Look at me, Sarah. My figures show it. You've got a neat figure yourself, Sarah. A nice springtime figure. Why do you look out the window so sadly? Sarah's room was at the back of the house. Looking out the window, she could see the windowless rear brick wall of the box factory on the next street. But the wall was clearest crystal, and Sarah was looking down a grassy lane shaded with cherry trees and elms and bordered with raspberry bushes and Cherokee roses. On the previous summer, Sarah had gone into the country and loved a farmer. In writing your story, never hark back thus. It's bad art and cripples the interest. Let it march, march! Sarah stayed two weeks at Sunnybrook Farm. There she learned to love old farmer Franklin's son, Walter. Farmers have been loved and wedded and turned out to grass in less time, but young Walter Franklin was a model agriculturist. He had a telephone in his cowhouse, and he could figure up exactly what effect next year's Canada wheat crop would have on potatoes planted at the dark of the moon. It was in this shaded and raspberried lane that Walter had wooed and won her. And together they'd sat and woven a crown of dandelions for her hair. He had immoderately praised the effect of the yellow blossoms against her brown tresses. And she'd left the chaplet there and walked back to the house, swinging her straw sailor in her hands. They were to marry in the spring. At the very first signs of spring, Walter said, and Sarah came back to the city to pound her typewriter. A knock at the door dispelled Sarah's visions of that happy day. A waiter had brought the rough pencil draft of the home restaurant's next day fare in old Schulenberg's angular hand. Sarah sat down to her typewriter and slipped a card between the rollers. She was a nimble worker. Generally in an hour and a half, the 21 menu cards were written and ready. Today there were more changes on the bill of fare than usual. The soups were lighter. Pork was eliminated from the entrees, figuring only with a Russian turnips among the roasts. The gracious spirit of spring pervaded the entire menu. Lamb, that lately capered on the greening hillsides, was becoming exploited with the sauce that commemorated its gambols. The song of the oyster, though not silenced, was diminuendo con amore. The frying pan seems to be held inactive behind the beneficent bars of the broiler. The pie list swelled, and the richer puddings had vanished. The sausage, with his drapery wrapped about him, barely lingered with the buckwheats and the sweet but doomed maple. 
Sarah's fingers danced like midges above a summer stream. Down through the courses she worked, giving each item its position according to its length with an accurate eye. Just above the desserts came the list of vegetables. Carrots and peas, asparagus on toast, the perennial tomatoes and corn and succotash, lima beans, cabbage, and then... Sarah was crying over her bill of fare. Tears from the depths of some divine despair rose in her heart and gathered to her eyes. Down went her head on the little typewriter stand and the keyboard rattled a dry accompanied to her moist sobs. For she had received no letter from Walter in two weeks and the next item on the bill of fare was dandelions. Dandelions with some kind of egg, but bother the egg. Dandelions, with whose golden blooms Walter had crowned her his queen of love and future bride. Dandelions, the harbingers of spring, her sorrow's crown of sorrow, reminder of her happiest days. Madam, I dare you to smile until you suffer this test. Let the perfect, fragrant golden tea roses that Percy brought you on the night you gave him your heart be served as a salad with French dressing before your eyes at the Schulenberg table d'hote. Had Juliet so seen her love tokens dishonored, she would sooner have sought the lethean herbs of the good apothecary. But what a witch's spring! Into that great, cold city of stone and iron, a message had to be sent. But there was none to convey it but the hearty little courier of the fields with his rough green coat and modest air. He is a true soldier of fortune, this Dante de Lyon, this lion's tooth, as the French chefs call him. Flowered, he will assist at lovemaking, wreathed in my lady's nut-brown hair. Young and callow and unblossomed, he goes into the boiling pot. By and by, Sarah forced back her tears, the cards must be written. But still in a faint golden glow from her dandelionine dream, she fingered the typewriter keys absently for a little while with her mind and heart in the meadow lane with her young farmer. But soon she came swiftly back to the rock-bound lanes of Manhattan and the typewriter began to rattle and jump like a motor car. At six o'clock the waiter brought her dinner and carried away the typewritten bill of fare. When Sarah ate, she set aside with a sigh the dish of dandelions with its crowning eggy accompaniment. As this dark mass had been transformed from a bright and love-endorsed flower to an ignominious vegetable, so had her summer hopes wilted and perished. Love may, as Shakespeare said, feed on itself but Sarah could not bring herself to eat the dandelions that had graced as ornaments the first spiritual banquet of her heart's true affection. At 7.30, the couple in the next room began to quarrel. The man in the room above sought an A on his flute. The gas went a little lower. Three coal wagons started to unload, the only sound of which the phonograph was jealous. Sarah knew that it was time for her to read. She got out the cloister and the hearth, the best non-selling book of the month, settled her feet on her trunk, and began. The front doorbell rang. The landlady answered it. Sarah listened. Oh, yes, you would, just as she did. And then a strong voice was heard 
in the hall below, and Sarah jumped for her door, leaving the book on the floor. You have guessed it. She reached the top of the stairs just as her farmer came up, three at a jump, and reaped and garnered her with nothing left for the gleaners. Why haven't you written? Oh, why? cried Sarah. New York is a pretty large town, said Walter Franklin. I came in a week ago to your old address. I found that you went away on a Thursday. Eh, that consoled some. It eliminated the possible Friday bad luck. But it didn't prevent my hunting for you with police and otherwise ever since. I wrote, said Sarah vehemently. Never got it. Then how did you find me? The young farmer smiled, a springtime smile. I dropped into that home restaurant next door this evening, said he. I don't care who knows it. I like a dish of some kind of greens at this time of year. I ran my eye down that nice typewritten bill of fare looking for something in that line. When I got below cabbage, I turned my chair over and hollered for the proprietor. He told me where you lived. I remember, sighed Sarah happily. That was dandelions below the cabbage. <laughs> I'd know that cranky W way above the line that your typewriter makes anywhere in the world, said Franklin. Why, there's no W in dandelions, said Sarah in surprise. The young man drew the bill of fare from his pocket and pointed to a line. Sarah recognized the first card she'd written that afternoon. There was still the rayed splotch in the upper right-hand corner where a tear had fallen. But over the spot where one should have read the name of the meadow plant, the clinging memory of their golden blossoms had allowed her fingers to strike strange keys. Between the red cabbage and the stuffed green peppers was the item... Dearest Walter, with hard-boiled egg. Well, now, perhaps after that sumptuous meal of literary delights, you might be able to enjoy just a little dessert, something tasty from that mischievous poet, Edward Lear. This is The Two Old Bachelors. Two old bachelors were living in one house. One caught a muffin, and the other caught a mouse. Said he who caught the muffin to him who caught the mouse, This happens just in time, for with nothing in the house, save a tiny slice of lemon and a teaspoonful of honey, and what to do for dinner, since we haven't any money, and what can we expect if we haven't any dinner but to lose our teeth and eyelashes and keep on growing thinner? Said he who caught the mouse to him who caught the muffin. We might cook this little mouse if we only had some stuffing. If we had but sage and onion, we could do extremely well. But how to get that stuffing, it is difficult to tell. Those two old bachelors ran quickly to the town and asked for sage and onions as they wandered up and down. They borrowed two large onions, but no sage was to be found in the shops or in the market or in all the gardens round. But someone said, 
A hill there is, a little to the north, and to its perpendicular top a narrow way leads forth, and there among the rugged rocks abides an ancient sage, an earnest man who reads all day a most perplexing page. Climb up and seize him by the toes, all studious as he sits, and pull him down and chop him into endless little bits. Then mix him with your onion, cut up likewise into scraps, and then your stuffing will be ready and very good, perhaps. Those two old bachelors, without loss of time, the nearly perpendicular crags at once began to climb, and at the top, among the rocks, all seated in a nook, they saw that sage, a reading of a most enormous book. You earnest sage, aloud they cried, your book you've read enough in. We wish to chop you into bits to mix you into stuffing. But that old sage looked calmly up, and with his awful book, at those two bachelors' bald heads, a certain aim he took. And over crag and precipice, they rolled promiscuous down. At once they rolled and never stopped in lane or field or town. And when they reached their house, they found, besides their want of stuffing, the mouse had fled and previously had eaten up the muffin. They left their home in silence by the once convivial door and from that hour those bachelors were never heard of more. And that is all for this edition of For the Love of Reading the Blue Plate Special. The material read on this edition of For the Love of Reading was selected, reviewed, and edited by Linda Pack. It was engineered by Eddie Hale. This program is archived and available on the KZYX For the Love of Reading podcast on demand with the KZYX phone app or wherever you get your podcasts. And at lindapack.net, you will find information and links to all of the shows aired on For the Love of Reading. And a little music as a digestif. From Antonia Lamb's album, Lucky's House, here she is playing and singing her tune, Bad Salad. By the way, the voice of the menacing side dish is me. Some 
nice tomatoes that I had Some spinach, some feta And a little garlic That was before the salad went bad That salad leaves a trail of slime Who cares if it's organic That salad dressed with grime That salad made me panic Climbed right out of the compost heap Kept on coming but it didn't have feet I tried to run, it was slipping and sliding Like a bad dream there was at night on its own disgusting mission bad salad took my appetite bad salad took over my kitchen felt like the painting of the silent screen escaping bad salad that smelled so mean I ran from the kitchen Slammed the door upon it Had the urge for a steak And a gin and tonic Cause bad salad makes you
KZYX For the Love of Reading is a production of listener-supported community radio, KZYX and Z, public broadcasting from Mendocino County, California. On our website, kzyx.org, you will find links to all our podcasts, including KZYX Mendocino County Remembered, Oral Histories Read for You by Linda Pack. You can also stream live programming and show your support by clicking the red Donate button. This is Linda Pack. Thanks for listening.